Well, this week we return to our exposition through the Gospel of John. It's been some months, and um, I'm glad to get back to it. Um, I had to remind myself of all of the things I preached over the last little, little while and uh, make sure I was tracking together. Um, but this morning, we're giving our focus to uh, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 is where, where we'll be looking at this morning. John chapter 20 through uh, 1 through 10, and if you choose to use the church Bible, 906, that's where you'll find it. All right, let's give our full attention to God's Word as it is read. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she, went, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is God's word. I invite you to join me in a prayer as we prepare to hear from the Lord. Father in heaven, we, um, we are gathered in this room and listening and watching online. Uh, we don't need to hear a man speak. We need to hear God speak. And so, Father, I pray that your voice would break through. You entrust men with these words to be preached in season and out of season, but the genuine work in our hearts is done by no mere man, but rather by your Spirit. That's what we want to happen, Father. We want your Spirit to break through, accomplish something that we cannot accomplish in ourselves. Transform us by your Word. Sanctify us by this truth, because your word is truth. So please help me, Father, not to get in the way. Help me to be clear and give us all attentive minds and hearts ready to hear and apply what you've said so that Christ, your Son, our Savior, may be glorified. It's in his name we pray it. Amen. At some point in time, it'll be nice not to use a pandemic illustration, but I'm going to use one anyway. <laughs> uh, I think we're all pandemic-weary, uh, but I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has thought about what all of this means. I know there's, there's the stuff on the surface, which is people get sick, but there's other meaning attached to it, and I don't want to minimize the, the tragic loss of life. But we all agree that above that tragedy or beyond it, there are broader implications, right? We, we've never experienced a worldwide pandemic before, not of this magnitude. 
And so there are questions that at least come to my mind as I think about what's the meaning of this. Questions about what we value and it's perceived safety versus personal freedom. What's, what's my responsibility? What's the government's responsibility? As a Christian, as I think about this, how do I practically apply Jesus' command to love my neighbor? Is that by staying away or drawing near? How is the Bible's command to gather together as believers rightly obeyed in a time like this? Does personal and community safety negate the Bible's command to gather as believers? And I'm not saying that I have fully resolved these tensions, but these are things that I think about. And that's not my, my aim this morning, even resolve these things. But the point I'm making, there's a broader point, is that significant life-changing events cause us to go searching for meaning, don't they? Even in the midst of not fully understanding the circumstances. Now, I say this because for Jesus' disciples, the fact that the tomb was empty and the way that they found it left them with questions. Now, those questions get very quickly resolved in our Bible text by verse 11, but, but we're not going there yet, and I didn't read there on purpose. What I want us to do this morning is spend some time with, with the uncertainty of the discovery, because I believe it teaches us something about faith in Jesus. In the section that we read, I think we can feel how Mary, Peter, and the other disciple, who happens to be John, how they're trying to make sense of what they have seen and, and then what they will do going forward. Now, as I said, it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of John. I just want to give you a little bit of a review. In the beginning of this Gospel, we were introduced, and this is just a broad overview, so we were introduced to Jesus as the Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And through a series of signs performed by Jesus, he turned water to wine, he healed the sick and the lame, he restored sight to the blind, he walked on water, he fed a multitude with a few loaves and fish, he raised a dead man to life after he'd been in a tomb four days. He did those signs, authenticating his message and the things that Jesus taught his teaching about salvation, the necessity of new birth, the way to life being the very words that Jesus himself spoke, and the fact that all that he did and speak were in absolute perfect harmony with the Father. And then finally, to, to Jesus' predictions about his death and the fact that that act itself would be for his ultimate glorification and as well for the drawing of people, the salvation of his own people. Now John, the author of this gospel, these signs were included by him. He refers to himself in this text as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But all of these events he included for the purpose, as he states later in this chapter, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what he wants. As we take this gospel to heart, it's to see and believe that Jesus is the Christ and not just to have that intellectually in our minds, but that we may know eternal salvation through him. Now, the fact of the empty tomb that we just read about in this text, it has everything to do with believing that Jesus is the Christ. So, as we unpack this, this brief section, 
and look for the meaning in the empty tomb. I want to organize our our thinking under three headings. And this is just how it it broke open for me to, to understand and unpack this. First, a new day. That's my first heading. The second, the limitations of human reason. And the third, the necessity of divine revelation. A new day. A new day. Have you ever had, and I'm sure you had, have you ever had such a day or season where it seemed like everything was against you? I mean, there's lots of stories of that these days. The, the thing you worked and planned for didn't work out. COVID wrecked the wedding. The borders closed. Your job is paying only two-thirds because you're in quarantine. Then you got an unexpected medical bill almost a year after the procedure. Then you broke a tooth and now you need a crown. You know, all of those things, like everything's just caving in. Or maybe when one of your children experienced a, a day like that or a season like that. We, we get it. Bad things happen. So many things out of our control. But maybe you've said it to the one you've tried to comfort. Well, tomorrow's a new day. It's that expressed longing that when the sun comes up, we'll have better perspective and and maybe a better day, and maybe the beginning of a better season. Now, I want you to put yourself in the sandals of Jesus' disciples, Mary, Peter, John. Two days ago, Jesus was hoisted high, publicly cursed after being falsely accused. He never defended himself. He just gave in to the torture and it seemed like he didn't want to fight for his vision of the kingdom. He died and was buried. Now as a disciple, they were thinking, what What have we done? Look at those disciples. What have they done? They invested three years following this man around. Yes, he did amazing things. He healed. He changed the weather. He stared down demons and they went screeching away. He taught like they'd never heard before. This was surely the promised Messiah. And now he's dead. Now we all know what's going to happen, okay? We all know what's going to happen, but I want you to feel it in this moment. Feel it like you've never heard the story. John is now signaling a new day. Not just a day of the week but a new era. The section begins, as we read it, on the first day of the week. Now, it seems, it seems like it's just a simple way to describe the day we call Sunday. Yet, if you look back through the Gospels, whenever Jesus spoke of his own death and his resurrection, as each of the Gospel writers records what Jesus says, he always says, on the third day. See, for John and the other Gospel writers, as they describe this moment, Instead of anchoring the event of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus relative to his death and burial, third day, they mark it on the first day of the week. Now, it may seem like a small thing to you, but it stood out. See, I think rather than looking back that John here, the gospel writer, he's compelling us to look forward. This new day is the beginning of a new week, yes, but it's the beginning of a new era. And of course, it had to be. It was meant to be. Before Jesus died, and even in his death, he was unique. 
his life was an innumerable list of firsts and onlys. Never before had the Son of God become human. Only Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in a woman without the aid of a human father. Never since the fall of Adam into sin had a man lived on this earth in sinless perfection. Never before was there a sacrifice that fully satisfied the wrath of God for sin. Never before. All of those lambs and goats and bulls never satisfied God ultimately. And never before was there a single man who could bear the punishment of mankind before God. Only Jesus fulfilled all those the scriptures. And because of the cross, only Jesus could be the way, the truth, and the life. Or as the Apostle Paul describes him in Timothy, the one mediator between God and man. Now, the tomb is empty. That fact will soon be apparent to his disciples and upwards of 500 500 others, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 500 others who will bear witness to the fact. And so, yes, this is new. John wants us to see that, that the newness of this means that so much will be different going forward. And because so much will be different, what was is no longer. We have to get this because... He will no longer be among his disciples physically. Jesus will not. Soon they will not hear his voice. Soon they will not feel his physical touch. Nor will they be able to eat bread and drink wine together physically. Yes, a few verses later in chapter 20, they will see Jesus. They will know that he is indeed alive. They will hear his voice. They will eat with him. But that will be temporary. So what's new? What's new for the people of God? And this is what is new for us, or this is what comes to us as being new. A new kind of presence. Where Jesus was physically present with his disciples, we don't, we don't have that. For Jesus' disciples and for us, a new kind of presence in the Holy Spirit. Jesus had said to his disciples before he went to the cross, he told them, he taught them, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What's new for the people of God is the presence of God in the very Holy Spirit of God who comes to us and dwells with us and dwells in us. And this new day, this new week, this new era means a new power. In the past, the people of God were certainly marked by by faith in God, lived out in obedience to God's laws, yes. But their faith proved over and over and over again to be weak. And their propensity for wandering and corruption led them quickly into rebellion and idolatry. And that is the story of the Old Testament. Occasion after occasion where God meets their rebellion with mercy. And they pledge again, all that you have 
said we will do. And they fall. But because of the empty tomb, which leads to the resurrection, leads us to understand the resurrection of Jesus, the people of God have been made new in that same resurrection power. It's a new day. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. A new power. Life. Life the way God wants us to live it. Life that means it's possible to obey his commands. Life that means it's possible to love what is holy and pure and good. Power for life that means that we can turn away from sin and corruption. And daily turn to Christ. Power so that as Jesus declared that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow. Power to do that. That's what we have. This is a new era and a new law. Israelites were given the Ten Commandments and a whole host of other laws to explain how the outworking of that would work in their community. Jesus said this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. We have a new law and that means just simply looking to Jesus. Because the tomb is empty, it's a new day. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you have been made new. New power, new presence, and a new law to love just like Jesus. All because the tomb was empty. Well, second, I want to look at the limitation of human reason. The limitation of human reason. Now, we hear a lot about science these days. Trust the science, believe the science, but what is science? Now, I looked up for an internet definition. This is science. The intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. Now, I'm not arguing against science. There's nothing wrong with science, but science as a means to understanding has limitations, why? Because it observes repeatable phenomena in the physical and natural world. It has no answers to what is supernatural and metaphysical. So how do you explain an empty tomb? Now, as Christians, we're going to say, well, it's the resurrection. But we're not there yet, right? We're sitting in this tension. And I want you to get into Mary's sandals. How do you explain the empty tomb? Mary's conclusion was not scientific per se, but it certainly would not be rejected by a modern-day scientist and by human standards, certainly reasonable. So what happened? Mary saw the tomb was empty. She ran to tell Peter and John, and she told them it was empty. Now, she told them why, too. Maybe she was thinking about the soldiers that 
crucified Jesus or maybe the Roman authorities. We don't know. But from her statement to them, she has not concluded that Jesus is raised. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. That's her reasoned conclusion. Now, of course, a missing body, a body, the body of the Lord Jesus, that's a sufficient reason for anguish. So, of course, she finds two of Jesus' disciples. She tells them this very truth, or at least what she believes to be the truth. They put his body somewhere. Isn't it interesting? And she's using reason. Well, the body's not there. They must have taken it away. These and other theories are still propagated today as explanations for the empty tomb. Someone stole the body. Now, it's hard to imagine where you'd hide a stolen body, but that's a conclusion that some reach. Others say, well, he wasn't really dead, and they come up with this theory they call the swoon theory. Well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just, he was just kind of, he was swooning. So they buried him, but then he kind of revived and doesn't really explain thrusting the spear into his side, but all that to say, that's reasonable in their minds. Or simply that, that the testimonies of his Jesus being alive and the explanation for the empty tomb was a mass delusion. And historians have trouble supporting that. Its text tells us, Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, a little sidebar here. Bible commentaries They've made much of the fact that John arrived at the tomb before Peter, but that, that Peter went into the tomb before John. I'm not even sure that there's any um, theological reason. I think John is just telling us the way it happened. And he tells us this way, and it gives it a, uh, the, the telling of it, the authenticity and the narrative. But suffice it to say, this happened. And this is how it happened. Who got there first was the detail that could be verified along with what they saw in the tomb. Simply stated, there was urgency on the part of both men. The body's gone. Now, unlike Mary, they saw the tomb was empty, but they decided to, to venture further, and they went inside the tomb. There they saw the linen cloths, the many strips of cloth soaked in the embalming spices there on what would be a kind of a, a shelf carved out of the rock. And in another place, that face cloth folded up in a separate place, an unusual scene. No doubt it crossed their minds that if Jesus' body was taken, as Mary had said, who would go to such trouble to unwrap the body and fold up the face cloth? Now, we don't know what they're thinking, but it's clear to me as I read the text several times they're not fully prepared to say at this point that Jesus is alive to the other disciples because it says in verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. Recap. Mary sees the tomb. 
It's empty. Concludes Jesus' body had been stolen. We don't know what Peter thought. And now we're told at some level John believed. So here's the point. While human, human reason, we, we have to understand, has limitations. But reason and faith are not incompatible. Let me just give you some things as I was thinking about. Faith without reason is silly. Faith without reason is silly. It leads to the belief in unicorns, tooth fairy, alien abductions, Bigfoot, and Santa. <laughs> Alternatively, reason without faith is a dead end. Think of Jesus' enemies. What do they do with their reason? Just one example, the, the religious leaders. They knew Lazarus had died and was buried for four days. They knew that. Everyone knew and saw Lazarus alive. And what did they decide? They decided that they had to kill Lazarus because people were believing in Jesus. Now, you could say that that's reasonable, but maybe not. Because in their mind, in their mind, this man could not be the Messiah. Now, these religious leaders were, were very well aware that Jesus himself had made the claim that he would rise again. Now, they didn't believe that he would, but what they certainly believed is this, is disciples would try to find a way to make it appear as if he did. And so what they did, they put a plan in place to guard the tomb because they thought Jesus' disciples would, would steal his body away so that they could propagate what they thought was an impossible claim of Jesus rising again. You can look it up in Matthew 27. So reason without faith is a dead end. But faith with reason? That's strong. So we can take it if the disciples had true faith, that is to say, if they trusted Jesus as the Son of God, then reason applied to the fact of the empty tomb would have considered that at least, at least three times, but probably more, they had heard Jesus describe what would happen to him. One example, Matthew 17, 22. Jesus said, talking about himself, the Son of Man, referring to himself as the Son of Man, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. Now, reason would say, well, that's entirely possible. But add to that, if that's the only thing that Jesus ever said, maybe it would be hard to swallow. But add to that all of the things that they saw Jesus do, all of the signs, the supernatural acts. Okay, maybe one sign, one miracle is a curiosity, an anomaly. But stack them all up. Multiple healings, the lame walking, the blind seeing, raising the dead, water into wine, calming the storm, walking on water, feeding multitudes of people, not once but twice. Now John is very selective, including what he put in this gospel. He said many other signs were done that were not written in this book. The tomb was empty. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we think about this, we have the same experience as Peter and John and Mary. The same experience. The tomb was empty. They had not yet seen Jesus. We have never laid our eyes on a physical Jesus. But we have plenty of evidence to know that our faith in Him is reasonable. The world will, will make all kinds of statements. 
that says, that pits faith against reason. Faith and reason, that they're somehow separate. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a reasonable faith. It's a reasonable faith. And so let me ask you, in the room or watching online, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that he died and rose again? Do you believe not only that he did that, but he, that he did that so that your own sins could be forgiven? And that in his resurrection, he offers you the guarantee of eternal life. Put your faith in him. If you have not done so, it's reasonable to put your faith in Jesus. Well, finally, that leads me to third heading, the necessity of divine revelation. The necessity of divine revelation. If we ask the question, how has God revealed himself? In theology, we have two categories of divine revelation. There is natural revelation and special revelation. Perhaps you've heard of these categories. Natural revelation is... is is what King David described in Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiworks. The very, the very cosmos screams out for divine intelligence and, and people who, who have studied these things talk about irreducible complexity. I think it was, I uh, um, can't remember his name. Some of you will know who the author is. Darwin's Black Box, that's the author of, of that. The very cosmos just says there's got to be, or there is order. And mathematicians and physicists who posit something other than intelligence outside of the universe end up proving nothing. But we get this. Natural revelation does not give us everything that we truly need to know to believe in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. And this brings us to the other category, special revelation. Special revelation is God speaking. God speaking. God has spoken through history and we have the entirety of our Bibles which is the record of God speaking to humankind through prophets and apostles or by the very Son of God as it says in the beginning of Hebrews long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is the son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact, exact imprint of his nature, God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So here's the point I'm making. On the necessity of divine revelation, observation, just viewing things, Without divine revelation leads to speculation. Now, describing Peter and his own response to the empty tomb, John said something here that needs our focus. Verse 8. He says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. So the other disciple, this is John's self-reference, he could say, I reached the tomb first, also went in after Peter, saw and believed. Now, we don't know what Peter was thinking. Text doesn't tell us. But John tells us he himself saw and believed. What did he see and believe? Well, he saw that Jesus' body was not there. 
He certainly believed that. It was obvious to him. He observed that. But did he believe that Jesus at this point had been raised? Maybe at some level. Maybe he's bringing the scriptures in. But it wouldn't seem to make sense with what he says next. See, John testifies at this point that something in his own thinking was missing, some aspect of revelation, God's special revelation. For verse 9, it says this, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. They didn't understand the Scripture. What Scriptures? How, in his own life and death, Jesus fulfilled what the scriptures had prophesied. Those scriptures. There are some 300 examples in our Old Testament. Begins with Genesis 3.15 that he, the seed of the woman, would bruise the, the head of the serpent. And so clearly in Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus' body never saw corruption. Jesus rose from the dead because from the very beginning, God has been saying it. So it comes down to this. If you believe that Jesus has been raised from the grave, it's, you, it's because you have believed that God said he would be raised from the grave. Not just the fact that he was raised, Listen to what Jesus himself said. And this is on the occasion of the parable he tells of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man had everything in this life and Lazarus, the poor beggar, had nothing. The rich man is in torment because he was unrighteous, rejected God. Lazarus, a righteous man before God but impoverished in this world. The rich man begs Abraham, just send him to touch his finger in some water and dip it on my tongue. The Lord says, no, there's a chasm between you. That can't happen. Well, then send someone back and tell my relatives. And this is Jesus' answer. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If they do not believe Moses and the prophets, and I'll paraphrase it, neither will they be convinced if Jesus rises from the dead. See the challenge here, don't you? Observation without divine revelation only leads to speculation. Speculations that take us away from the truth. Well, his body must have been stolen. We need the word of God to speak. And Peter, being a very eyewitness of Jesus himself, seeing him, talking with him on the beach, we'll get to that in a few weeks. What does Peter say in his sermon in Acts chapter 2? After the, the disciples spill out of the upper room, some 120 of them, they're proclaiming Christ. All of these people are saying, what's going on? And Peter then begins to address the crowd and he speaks to them and he says, he doesn't say, oh, oh, I saw him. No. He puts together a sermon where he quotes Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. Revelation. And there he makes the case that Jesus is the Christ, crucified and raised. 
And what do the people do? Acts chapter 2. I didn't think he gives an invitation, but he might. They just cry out. What shall we do? Repent, Peter says, and be baptized. They responded to the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, crucified and raised. And brothers and sisters, that's us. (laughs) We haven't seen him physically. We didn't see him walk out of the tomb. We didn't get to put our hands, fingers in his, the wound on his side or touch the wounds in his hands. But if you've believed the scriptures, if you've believed what God spoke to you in special revelation, and you've believed in the Son of God, you have been made alive. So what's the meaning of the empty tomb? Well, of course, we believe in a living Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we have been ushered by that very event into a new era. And it's as if every time we gather, like today, on the Lord's Day, it's a reminder that it's a new week, it's a new day, it's a new era. And we've been made new in Christ. And we can think critically about the world around us, understanding that that human reason is always going to come up against the things that the Bible claims to be true. But faith, our faith in Christ is a reasonable faith. And, And you need not be ashamed of your confidence in Christ. You need not be ashamed because it is very reasonable. God has revealed Jesus Christ crucified and raised in the scriptures and we have them. And anytime we share them with someone else, God may very well bring new life to someone who is dead. This is the meaning, at least in my view, of the empty tomb. We'll look more at uh, in the coming weeks the particular experience of the apostles, the disciples. But I'm comforted, and I trust you are too, that all of this, all that we have in Christ comes to us because God has spoken. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for speaking to us and revealing to us your son. And while we have not beheld him with our eyes, we see your testimony through a prophets and apostles. We see what's been accomplished and the power that we have. And we thank you. Father, would you use us? Would you give us confidence in this message that Jesus is alive? Would you give us confidence in this and not cower away from those who would would deride us or try to hold faith as somehow the opposite of reason? Help us to stand strong, strengthened by your power and by your word and by your Holy Spirit, so that as a result, the Lord Jesus is even more glorified. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.